okay? Um, if you have your copy of God's Word around you there, uh, I invite you to grab it. Go to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7. Uh, we'll be uh, making our way around the Bible uh, tonight, uh, kind of a little bit different from what we normally will be doing even in this series, which is to find one passage of Scripture and uh, spend our time there. Tonight we're going to kind of take a trip around the, the, the Bible, if you will, just to begin to address some concerns as we start this new series. Uh, one of the things, though, that I did want to mention to you when we were doing our announcements and want to remind you of is that you should have found on your seat there a card, an uh, invite card. Uh, one of the things that we're trying to do is challenge ourselves as a college ministry. Just every member, every week, every person who comes into contact with our ministry, just take one of those cards and invite someone. So if this is the first time that you've come to Crave, our challenge would be like if We've been able to minister and help you in any way. We want to be able to do that to the people around you. So take that card and invite someone that you'd come in contact with this week and let them know so that they can be a part of our college ministry together. So Matthew chapter 7 tonight is where we're going to start and uh, invite you to stand with me as we pay honor to the reading of God's word this evening. Matthew chapter 7, beginning in verse number 15, this is the word of the Lord. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Therefore, by their fruits, you will know them. And this has been the reading of God's word and thank him and praise him for preserving it for us. Let's pray one more time and then we'll dive into our sermon this evening. Father, we come before you thankful for the opportunity we have to start a brand new series. Thankful for the opportunity to explore your word, to engage with um, those who hold contrary beliefs to what is taught in your scriptures. Pray that over the next few weeks as we uh, chop it up over these particular topics that we would be gracious, long-suffering, and kind, but also, uh, according to your word, speaking the truth in love that we might grow up into maturity uh, in you. And so we just ask that you would help us and specifically that you would help me as I seek to minister in this way. I uh, think tonight uh, we're aware of the fact that we're not the only people who are gathered in our city, not the only people who are, who are ministering, sharing the gospel. Think of our friends at Ridgecrest and the, the pastoral changes that have been happening there. And think of uh, Pastor Jeremy Munez and just his leadership. And just ask that you would be with uh, that church. You'd help them as they continue to grow and minister uh, inside the city of Springfield. Think also of our friends at Spring Hill Baptist Church, Father. Think of Pastor Jared Proctor and uh, Michael Nall and the, the rest of the staff there. We ask that you would, again, watch over them, that they uh, may abound in their preaching and proclamation of the gospel. And may we always be uh, mindful of the fact that we're not the only people here at Crossway who have the gospel and are doing ministry in the city, that we would pray for each other and that um, we would desire to see people, regardless of where they go to church, come to a saving faith in you. We ask now that as we turn our attention to your word and we navigate through it, that you would help us uh, to be people who are, as you told your disciples, 
to be wise as serpents and harmless as doves, uh, that we would know the truth, but in knowing the truth, not be arrogant, boastful, uh, but wise with it, engaging people well for your glory and our good. We ask all these things in your son's name. Amen. You can be seated. Think of a famous movie line. You might think of this one. Bueller, Bueller, Bueller. It dates a little bit, even me in the room, to think about a movie like Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Kind of this idea of identifying yourself or who are you, right? This is uh, sometimes happens in our world now of instant communication. Someone texts you from a number you don't recognize and they immediately dive in like they're your best friend. And you're like, I have no idea who this person is. And you've got to be careful because there's an awkward space right there. You've got about two text messages back and forth before you've officially lost the grace period of saying, I don't know who you are. If you've ever gone past that moment, if you've ever been in a text conversation that's gone past that grace period, and you're about five messages in, and this person's like turning up the heat like on what you're talking about, but you still don't know who they are, and you're not really sure, like, man, like I hope that we're tight, and I hope that I know who this person is. And then you ask the question, like, who are you? And then they tell you, and you've told them, like, I've added you. Like, I for sure have got your number. This awkward moment, right, when we are trying to identify people. But identity is important whether or not we like it. Um, we want to be able to identify people. I don't like, because I'm just weird, right? I don't like picking up the phone and actually getting a phone call from a number I don't know, and primarily only answer Springfield area numbers now because I got out-of-state numbers, so take that, spam callers. Like, I know nobody from Davenport, Iowa is actually calling me because I don't have any friends in that town anymore. So I, like, I'm tricking the spammers, but then somebody will identify, I, ideally they'll call me, and I'll pick up the phone, and again, I'm just supposed to pick it up based on, like, your sound of your voice and... It's even worse, like, if it's a high-pitched guy or a low-pitched girl and you think that it's, yeah, that never ends well. Especially, like, if you're on the phone with, like, a customer service rep and they're like, you're like, thank you, sir. And she's like, I'm a ma'am. And they're like, oh, man, that really didn't end well for me. Um, but honestly, like, we want to be able to identify people. In fact, we want to be able to identify problems, right? Those of you who are in dating relationships or used to be in dating relationships, and this might be the reason why you used to be in or not currently in. You get into an argument with that person that you're dating and they are, you're in an argument and you don't know why you're arguing. That's the worst feeling in the world. And you tell that person, like, why are we even fighting? And the response is, you should know. This is terrifying. God, you're right. I should know. And forgive me for not knowing. And just understand now, you're married to me, so you can't go anywhere. Like, you're stuck. Like, so, yes, I'm an idiot, and yes, I don't know, but you've got to tell me what the problem is. Because, right, you can't fix a problem that you don't know exists. The novel concept, right? And even your car, like, your car starts to make weird noises, and you take it to a mechanic, and they're like, what's wrong with it? And you're like, I don't know. That's why we're here. Like, if I knew what was wrong with it and I was a mechanic, I would fix it. This is your job. Like, listen, 
and it sounds like it's about to fall apart. Like, that's what it sounds like to me. Like, it sounds like at any moment, all four wheels are going to, like in a cartoon, pop off, and I'm just going to go sliding down the road. Do you think that might be a problem? And the mechanic's like, oh, I, don't, I think you can get by for a couple more weeks. Like, that's not what you want to hear. So we turn our attention right to a brand new series talking about cults and world religions. And, and what's really going to be helpful for us is to actually identify what makes up a cult rather than just jumping in and be like, you're a cult. Like, nobody likes that. You don't want to be called a cult if you're not really a cult, right? Like nobody appreciates it as a Christian, especially an evangelical Christian, when someone's like, you're part of a cult. No, I'm not. I just do CrossFit. Get off me, right? That's where we live. Um, sorry to those of you, two people who are CrossFitting. I'm sure you're going to tell me about it anyway after we're done. We want to know what makes up a cult before we start naming them. Because I think it's fair to the world religions, the cults that do exist, and even those that I would call friends that believe certain key doctrines and they hold to them firmly, but maybe we disagree on some secondary or tertiary outlying doctrinal disputes. We don't want to... Everyone who, I grew up in this world, maybe you did too. Everybody in the world that I grew up that wasn't a Baptist was part of a cult. They're just all part of a cult. It's an easy way to identify a cult. Like, oh, you're a Presbyterian? Part of a cult. Oh, you're a Pentecostal? Cult. Uh, Lutheran? Cult. Catholic? Cult. Uh, you just like getting up in the morning and eating donuts? Cult. Like, that was the world that I grew up in. That's not fair. Okay, we, there are people, there are legitimate people who love the Lord, who are genuinely saved, and there are a lot of independent Baptists who are going to be frustrated when they get to heaven and all these dang Presbyterians are everywhere. Um, but for the sake of talking about cults, we have to actually define what makes up a cult. And so I really struggled uh, to think about how we could try and limit this and boil it down and make it easy to understand and so rather than trying to make it about Christianity, we're just going to go wide. Because not every cult that exists in the world around us is based or is an offshoot of Christianity that's uh, maligned the doctrine of Christianity necessarily. So we're going to go wide in our definition. We're going to say that a cult is a religious or semi-religious sect or group whose members are controlled or dominated almost entirely by a single individual or organization. Now I know because you're all college students, you got all of that perfectly, and I don't need to say it again. But for those of us like myself who struggle, I'll say it again. A religious or semi-religious sect or group whose members are controlled or dominated almost entirely by a single individual or organization. We're going to go there and say these are cults. So for the next few weeks, we're going to look at cults, and then when we get to world religions, I'm going to make a, a distinction from what separates a cult from like a legitimate religion. Because I think, again, got to be careful how we interact with people. Nobody likes it when we're mischaracterized. And that's the thing that scares me the most about doing a series like this, right? We're doing it and the, the, the big church is doing it. And then some of you are like, let's do it too. And I, I, just our conversation in the hallway has been this. Like we want to be charitable, but we also want to be truthful. Like we don't want anybody who were to get up tomorrow in an LDS church a Mormon church and, and mischaracterize what it means to follow Christ. So I'm going to do the best I can over the next few weeks to just say, like, this is what you believe. And if you don't, like, if somebody you come in contact with be like, no, that's what you believe. 
I want you to be able to have the confidence that if they're like, that's not what we really believe, to be able to say, well, that's interesting because those are what your religious documents and teachings and major leaders have said. Like, we don't want to get into, no, like, it's a semantic argument. Like, you got to understand it. We're going to be clear. So what does it look like, I guess, to answer the question, what is a cult? Well, I think, and we're going to have to move tonight, so some of you that take notes, your pen is probably going to smoke because we've got to move because I've come up with and boiled it down, started with eight, got down to five. So there's five characteristics. They all start with the word deny. So five denials that I think at a baseline level, help us to identify a cult. Number one, and this is really important. All of them are really important. But um, this one is going to tie all of them together, really. It's the cults deny the authority of Scripture. So what I'm hoping to do tonight, just to kind of set this in front of you as we start with our first one, is I'm going to try to give you a short refutation of that denial. So I'm going to say this is what a cult does, and here's what the Bible has to say about that identity. So 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, you can write this down. I'm going to read it. It says this, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Cults inherently deny the authority of Scripture. When Christians talk about what governs their lives, we will say inevitably, we are people of the book. So we are people of the book. We read the Bible. The Bible is the only thing that's sufficient for life and practice, guiding a Christian. That's how they come to know Christ. It's how they'll grow in their relationship with Christ. It's how they know what it means to even have a relationship with Christ. And so the Bible is our sole authority. It, not men, not church, not a council or a group of men. And there's no committee, right? This isn't like the, the college football playoff where a group of people decide these are the rules that are in and these are the rules that are out. No, we believe that the Bible, and specifically when we talk about the Bible, what we believe about the Bible is that you and I have the ability to read and understand and know the Bible. You, you don't need someone else to interpret it for you. You can read the Bible for yourself. This is what made all of the Reformation possible in the early 1500s. And it scared the living daylights out of the religious leaders. You mean we're going to give people the Bible in their own language and we're going to let them read it and we're not going to tell them how they should live? Cults deny that that is necessary or possible. In fact, they even deny that the Bible can be understood rightly. So just for an illustration, and we'll dive more into some of these illustrations throughout the coming weeks, but the Mormon church, or Latter-day Saints, right? We, that, that's what they want to be called now as LDS, Latter-day Saints. It's actually the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and if we say that, we'll be here for an hour so we're going to just call it LDS Church or Mormon Church, believes that the Book of Mormon is an actual correction of the Bible. Sometimes you'll engage with someone that is, is a Mormon or LDS, and they'll tell you that it's just another religious book. And, and here's the, the, the sad reality is the Book of Mormon is written to help people rightly interpret the corrupted 
Bible. That is their approach to Scripture. They would tell you this Bible that I have and that you're holding or maybe looking at on your device has been corrupted and only with the help of the Book of Mormon can you actually interpret it rightly. In fact, the Book of Mormon is actually a correction of our English Bibles. That's a denial of the authority of Scripture. Another way that the denial of the authority of Scripture comes about is cults will often talk about this idea of you need a new revelation from God. Our leader has heard the voice of God. He's told us these things. That's why one of the, the things that Christians need to be careful is the language that they use when they start saying, God told me. Well, how did God tell you? Did he speak audibly in your ear? Because if he did, that wasn't God. But if the spirit presses scripture and you're being directed in that way, that's hearing from God. And we're, but we've got to clarify that. We've got to make sure we're watching the words that we use. Because cults will say, we need a new revelation from God. Here's what, anytime somebody tells you they have a new word from the Lord, what they're telling you is they deny verses 16 and 17 of God's word here found in 2 Timothy chapter 3. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. So when we say we need a new revelation from God, what we're saying is this Bible isn't actually complete. This Bible actually cannot do what it says it will do. We need something extra. But more often than not, it's a new revelation is something that corrects God's word or is outside of God's word or is in direct opposition of God's word. So we've got to be careful, right? They deny the authority of scripture. Now, here's what the danger of a series like this is. A danger of a series like this is we start to make our way through this sermon and we're identifying, yeah, cults, they're terrible. Like, boo, cults, they're the worst. And what ends up happening is we sit through a whole sermon series on cults and world religions and we feel like we're superior because we know all the right answers and the pride begins to build and we're suddenly Mr. Johnny on the spot, know-it-all super Christian who's just like, cults, boo, world religions, boo. Like, that's what happens. And so what I'm going to hopefully do is ask us some of the same application questions we would ask in regular sermons, even in these sermons. So I'm just going to ask you right now. You can talk all day long that you don't deny the authority of Scripture, but ultimately, what is the ultimate authority in your own life? Because if it's not Scripture, you can say all day long, those people are terrible, they deny the authority of Scripture, while you functionally deny the authority of Scripture in your own life. If you're not willing to submit to what God's word has to say, you're no different. And this is where it gets right. This gets icy and spicy all at the same time. Like you say, well, David, did you say I'm basically like a cult follower? Yeah, you are. Because you know what a cult follower is? An unbeliever. You know what an unbel- all unbelievers have in common? They reject the authority of scripture. And so what we have is all these people are like, I submit to the authority of Scripture, but I'm going to sleep with my girlfriend, even though the Bible says flee sexual immorality. Like, I'm, I believe in the authority of Scripture, but I swear like a sailor, even though the Bible says in Ephesians, let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth. You can say all day long you don't deny these things, but if your life doesn't reflect 
that you don't deny them, then you functionally deny them. And which is worse, to fake deny them or to actually deny them? Well, we can get into an ethics class about that, but either way, both are incredibly bad. So I would just ask you, are you submitting yourself to the teaching of Scripture? So one of the things that we're going to look for when we identify a cult, do they deny the authority of Scripture? The second thing we're going to look for is, do they deny the Trinity? Genesis 1, 26 and 27. You might say, David, this seems odd place to go to defend the Trinity. I know it may seem odd, but hopefully it will make sense in a minute. Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27 says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So what happens here, and right? So here's the main knock. From cults, cults are going to say, well, the Bible never expressly argues or uses the term Trinity anywhere inside of the scriptures. We're going to continually come to this argument time and time again over the course of our series. So I just want to start us with the the rebuttal. A lot of these we're going to pick up and build on. So it's not like tonight he's like, well, you didn't seem to really do good there on point number two, but uh, three, four, and five were okay. We're going to build an argument together against a lot of different cultish teachings throughout the semester. And here in the Hebrew, what is being used is the word Elohim, which is God in a plural form. God from the beginning, all the way from Genesis to Revelation, is going to communicate about himself in Trinitarian terms. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And he's going to identify and reveal them all throughout Scripture for us to use. We got to, as my Hebrew professor who I I love, he's crazy, but I love him, used to say, like, you got to keep your snake eyes open. I'm like, what does that even mean? Like, where's the Hebrew class? His son was a missionary in Brazil, and he would talk all the time about, you know, you go out for a walk in the Amazon rainforest, and if you don't keep your snake eyes open, what that means is you walk into a snake that's hanging over a tree and just kind of hanging down, and there it is right in your face, which I'm like, I don't like snakes, and I don't want that to happen. Or you step on one, which I'm like, that's definitely not what I want to have happen. I've had that happen in the backyard, and it was like non-poisonous, and I freaked out. I'm like, I'm... I literally called Jessica on the phone. I'm like, I'm done mowing the lawn. I just stepped on a snake. I literally put the lawnmower up and was like, I'm done. They can have the yard. It's theirs. They own it now. They're responsible. They're completely responsible for the backyard. So the other thing that can happen when you're walking through the rainforest, (laughs) keep your snake eyes open, is because apparently snakes can just fall out of trees, like right on top of you. I'm like, oh, that's just, that's glorious. Like, let's see how close I can get to swearing while I'm walking through the rainforest by random snakes dropping out. Like, you thought snakes on a plane were bad. Snakes dropping out of a tree onto your head. That's terrible. You say, well, David, why do you say keep your snake eyes open? Because here's the deal. you got to pay attention to the scriptures because when we just read it, we don't pay any attention to it. We gloss over things. Like in the Old Testament, we'll read a lot of times, we'll hear references to the angel of the Lord. The angel of the Lord in the Old Testament, more often than not, when he shows up, that's actually Jesus Christ in a pre-incarnate, like pre-coming to 
earth and taking on the form of a servant and being made in the likeness of man. That's Jesus in the Old Testament. But we don't pay attention to those things and we miss that the Trinity actually exists all throughout Scripture. We're just not paying attention when we read our Bibles. And then you live in Springfield, Missouri, where any talk about the Spirit, we start, everybody's like, oh my gosh, he's talking about the Spirit. Is everybody going to start speaking in tongues? People are going to get healed. It's like Benny Hidd let the bodies hit the floor all over here. Like, what's going to happen? Because we have an, a wrong understanding of the Holy Spirit. Because here, here's two things that happen. You, when you get into talking about the Trinity, and we're going to talk more about the Holy Spirit, so you're like, oh, great, I thought I came to the Baptist church. Well, just buckle in, okay? We'll all get through this together. Here's what happens when we talk about the Trinity. We overemphasize or we de-emphasize a lot of times. We don't have a strong, robust understanding of Trinitarian theology, and that has to happen if we're going to in- interact, one, well with what it means to follow Christ, but two, if we're going to interact with people who don't believe what we believe. We're going to have to interact well. We have to be robustly Trinitarian. So that means we can't overemphasize the Spirit, right? So we're not laying on the ground and trying to speak in tongues and overemphasizing the Spirit. But then we're also not going to the sometimes the Baptist extreme where we're like, Spirit, never heard of him. Right? We're pretty much dualists. See, here's the problem. Cults end up being modalists more often than not. And you say, well, what, what's modal, what is a modalist? Well, a modalist believes that God exists in different modes, Father, Son, and Spirit. And he kind of, it's kind of like when you drive one of those rental cars that is nicer than your own car, and it's got like sandy mode and rocky mode, and it's got like this terrain mode or auto mode. And you're like, hey, you know, it's pavement, but sandy mode. Let's just see what happens. And so we just kind of punch it into the mode that we need it to be in. That's what a lot of times happens inside of cults is they believe that God operates in mode. So he's in the mode of the Father. He's in the mode of the Son. He's in the mode of the Spirit, but never co-equally and co-eternally all three persons existing in one Godhead. That's what Christians believe, that God has existed from eternity past as one God existing in three distinct persons. You want to get yelled at? By a theology professor, say that God exists in parts, right? And he's, well, he's part son and part spirit and part father. Um, yeah, that will end poorly for you because you just became a 14th century heretic like that. So congratulations. I mean, those guys are dead, but you're just resurrecting their bad theology. So you see what's happening here is we're redefining terms. That's oftentimes what a cult does. They take a term and they redefine it so that they can continue to use that term and then it looks a lot like and sounds a lot like right and then then they're like well if it looks like a duck and quacks like a duck it must be a cult because you read it you redefine the terms you can't do oh like if it's mooing it's not quacking people are like no it's it's the real thing. So here's the question, though. Do you, right now, as a professing Christ follower, do you recognize that the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are co-equally and co-eternally existing and are actually present and working in your life? That the spirit, you're supposed to walk daily in the spirit, Ephesians tells us, so you won't fulfill the lust of the flesh. 
that Jesus Christ is at the right hand of the Father making intercession for you and arguing your salvation based on his merit and not your own, and that the Father has actually sealed you until the day of redemption. You're in the Father's hand. No one can pluck you out of it. Like, right? You can't lose it. If you're genuinely, legitimately regenerate, saved, you can't lose your salvation because you're securely held by the Father. But here's the deal. Again, we find ourselves with a group of people who are functionally modalist in the way that they live their lives. If you're not submitted to these regular practices, unfortunately, you are a functional modalist. Everybody's like, man, this guy's saying I'm the worst. No, I'm just saying like you've got to check what you actually practice, not what you say. You got a lot of Christians like, yeah, I believe in the Trinity and I believe in uh, the authority of Scripture, but they live like pagans. So deny the Trinity, deny the authority of Scripture. Number three, they deny the deity of Christ. This is really bad. Mark chapter one, Mark chapter one, and we're going to pick up whatever speed level I've not been at yet to get through this. Mark chapter 1, beginning in verse number 9. It came to pass in those days that Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And immediately coming up from the water, he saw the heavens parting and the Spirit descending upon him like a dove. So notice who's present in this. Got Jesus being baptized, the Spirit's descending like a dove, not the dove is a spirit like... (laughs) Oh, if I had like wings like this dove, I would fly away and be at rest. No, this is a legitimate dove in the form of the Spirit is coming down. And a voice from heaven, that's God the Father, is saying, You are my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. This is God the Father saying through the power of the Spirit, This is my Son. He is fully God. And fully man. Like, we're going to wrestle with that, right? That's why you're like, we're going to do a cult series, and then he's going to do doctrine stuff on Sundays? Why is this so intense? Because we can't cover it in 30 minutes. People are like, well, you know, David, you've been preaching for 27 minutes, and I've got to go get something to eat because, heaven forbid, we go to eight. But anyway, like, let's be intense about following Jesus only if it's within an hour. This is what happens inside of cults. They deny the deity of Christ. C.S. Lewis, right? We, we all love Lewis because we all love small British men that write uh, stories about tigers and little kids hiding in closets. Um, that's just who we are because we're Americans. <laughs> Lewis writes in Mere Christianity, which I'm just going to say this, and we can talk about it later if you want to, is not necessarily one of the best books to read on what it means to follow Christ, but I understand that it's had a major impact on a lot of people. So Lewis, though, writes one of his most powerful arguments inside of Mere Christianity, and if you just want to read this argument, I'll even footnote it for you. You can get a copy of Mere Christianity, go to page 55 and 56, where Lewis makes this claim. Jesus Christ either... And this is what he calls it. It's a famous trilemma. We've got dilemma, right? Two opposite things. We've got three, so we're going to call it a trilemma. This is what lays in front of us. Jesus is either a liar, right? He's not actually the son of God. 
he's a lunatic because he's outside his cotton-picking mind to think that he is God or he is actually the Lord. And Lewis is going to argue through the rest of mere Christianity that he is Lord based on some, some really good, solid, key characteristics. Mere Christianity, if you just want that, is great. Outside of that, it gets kind of some weird spots and times, and I can help you with that. It's not that big of a deal. But denying the deity of Christ is famous inside of cults. He's not actually God. He's not actually Savior. He's not actually Lord. Conrad Mboyewe says about Jesus, he cannot be just a good role model. That's what, how he says it. So I just want to give kudos to him because it's so cool. I want to be like him because he pastors in Africa, and that's just got to be intense, like, like preaching and then like a giraffe walks through. Like, that's amazing. <laughs> I don't know. That probably doesn't happen. Jesus cannot be just a good role model because a good role model doesn't save you. Mr. Rogers is a great role model, but Mr. Rogers, if he never trusted in Jesus Christ, the only one who is sufficient to save him, and I know this, oh man, like we should probably edit this out of the podcast for sure, but if Mr. Rogers genuinely never trusted in Christ, he can be the greatest role model for the history of the world that can watch him on television, but he will spend eternity separated from God in a literal hell. Because a good role model is not enough to save you. Someone who is sinless, someone that is perfect, someone that must be the all-sufficient sacrifice. Think of Hebrews. The blood of bulls and goats is not sufficient. It's merely pacifying. You're like, why is there so much bloodshed of animals in the Old Testament? Peter's like, Jesus is terrible. God is terrible. They're cruel to animals. It's because somebody's blood has to be shed. Because without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sins. And that's not a New Testament text. That's Isaiah 53. So the question tonight is, how do you view Jesus in your own personal life? Is he a liar? Is he a lunatic? Or is he Lord? And the bigger question tonight for you is, have you actually legitimately made him the Lord of your life? Have you genuinely trusted in him for the forgiveness of your sins? Number four, and we're going to move quickly now, even quicker than we've ever been moving up to this point. We'll flip over to John chapter 16 and say this. Not only do cults deny the authority of scripture, do not only cults deny the, the uh, trinity, they deny the deity of Christ, they also deny the existence of the Holy Spirit. You're like, David, these people are all over the place. Well, just remember, we're not able to clearly define cults as just one group. It's not like this one group has all five and they're for sure cults. One of the things that's scary is a lot of times what you'll find in cults and even world religions is they're close. But one of these five might be present. Maybe two. But sometimes it's just one. It's not always all five. And you're like, oh yeah, they're easily a cult because they deny all five of these things. Again, right? Keeping our snake eyes open. John chapter 16 Jesus says this in verse number five, but now I go away to him who sent me and none of you ask me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. 
And when he has come, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment, of sin because they do not believe in me, of righteousness because I go to my Father and you see me no more, of judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. Jesus says right here to his disciples, the Holy Spirit is coming and he has a specific role. And this is where we have to get the Holy Spirit's role right. Otherwise, we're going to misapply who he is. What is the Holy Spirit's main role? Well, Jesus tells us that when he has come, verse 8, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment, of sin because they do not believe in me, of righteousness because I go to my Father and you see me no more, of judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. Jesus says the Holy Spirit must come because otherwise the world is not going to be convicted of sin and they're not going to know their need for Christ. Romans 1 tells us that our knowledge of God is sufficient enough to do two things. One, to separate us from God, and two, for us never to be saved by that, that mere knowledge alone. Romans chapter 1 tell, teaches that clearly. Read Romans 1. It tells you that with, before Christ, you suppressed any knowledge of Christ. Everything that is written on you about a creator and about a deity and about a higher power, all of that is suppressed by you, you suppress that information. It's not that you don't know that God exists. It's that you suppress the reality that God exists. And what does the Spirit do? The Spirit is working. Some of you right now that don't know Christ as your Savior, you're like, this point has been the worst. Because I've already, like inside of myself, there's been some stirring. And I don't really know how to de describe it. It's almost like pulling and tugging. And I don't know what's going on. And it's really freaky because it's never happened before. And I'm just telling you, that's the work of the Spirit. He's calling you to repentance and belief and trust in Christ. Some of you experience that. All of us experience that when we actually place our faith and trust in Christ. We're drawn by the Holy Spirit. He's doing that work. And our responsibility is to trust in Christ, which leads us to this, like you cannot deny the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit is at work and he's convicting, he's drawing, he's wooing, he's calling people to himself, which is why number five is the worst denial of all. The denial of salvation by grace alone. This is, uh, guys, I'm telling you, this all culminates right here in this point. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says this, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The most damning thing about cults at the end of the day is uniquely rooted one and five together. By denying the authority of Scripture, they deny that you must be saved by grace alone. In other words, that you can work your way to heaven or that you just try harder, do better, be better, be more involved in our cult, be more involved in this religious group, and that will save you. Friends, that will send you to hell. That will send you to hell even in the middle of a Baptist church thinking that if I just come here, if I'm just involved in the college ministry, if I'm just involved in the church, if I serve a little bit more, if I'm a little bit more serious about reading my Bible, then God will accept me. You will never be accepted. You can't be accepted on the basis of your works. Isaiah says about your works that they're like dirty menstrual rags. Like that's what your works are to God. You're trying to get yourself better, to clean yourself up, 
John rips, just absolutely rips into the Pharisees and religious leaders because they show up because he's teaching. He's in the wilderness and he's saying, repent and believe in Jesus. And and the, the religious leaders, they show up and they're like, what are you doing? And he's like, you're a bunch of whitewashed tombs. You've cleaned yourself up on the outside, but on the inside, you smell like death and decay. That's what some of you tonight are. Your whitewashed tombs because you're trying to save yourself and you're no better than any of us were before when we were trying to save ourselves by being better or doing more. And you're no different than somebody who's in a cult who's just saying, if I'm just more passionate, that will save me. You're wrong. You'll just do more effort on your way to an eternity separated from God forever because you cannot save yourself. Paul says it clearly here. You're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And the only way that you're ever going to know any of that is through the preaching of Scripture alone. And all of that is done to God's glory and for his glory. And you're good. A lot of times we don't want to say that. We're like, it's for God's glory. We should say, and for your good. It's good to not be separated from God forever in hell. Because the worst thing about hell is not the fact that it's eternal damnation where you're in torment. The worst thing about hell is being separated for eternity from the presence of Almighty God. And so tonight, what I want to say to you as we bring this first sermon to a close is just to say this. I can define cults for you all day long, and I can teach you what cults believe, and I can teach you what they argue and what Christians argue for and the differences from both sides. But I can tell you this right now. None of it matters if you don't know Christ as your Savior. None of it matters because you're not going to argue your way into being a Christ follower by just knowing more about the Bible. And I'm fearful that that's what some of you are trusting in. If I just go to one more Bible study, if I just go to one more small group, if I just go to one more Wednesday night, that will be enough. It it won't be because you can't save yourself by being better. The wonderful thing about Christianity is it says this. Christianity compared to every other world religion and cult, every other religion and cult in the world focuses on what you have to do. Christianity is the only religion in the world that focuses on what someone else did for you. World religions say you have to do more. Christianity says Christ has done it all for you. And so I would just call on you tonight to repent and believe in Christ. Any other questions about that? We're going to sing here in just a minute. Then we're going to be adult leaders standing in the back. You can ask them those questions. I'm going to pray for us. And then the way we end our services together is by singing and then we're dismissed. But if you have questions, there's going to be people in the back who would love to be able to explain to you how you can know what it means to follow Christ and not just be someone who's trying to do more or be religious. Let's pray.